Good morning, everyone. Scripture reading for the sermon today is going to be in Exodus chapter 15, if you want to follow along. We're going to be reading Exodus 15, verses 22 to 27. This passage is on pages 57 and 58 in your pew Bibles, pages 57 and 58. Again, Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah, because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Therefore the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, We're moving ahead today in our journey through the book of Exodus, kind of with the worship music still in the background, still echoing, Uh, not necessarily our worship music, but uh, the worship music that we sang in the first part of Exodus chapter 15. Uh, Recall that that was a a musical interlude of sorts, as uh, the people paused to praise the Lord for Uh, His great deliverance, this deliverance that he had just uh, done by rescuing them from the hands of their oppressors. And he he did it, you'll recall, in dramatic fashion. Um, They're praising as the, the axles from the chariots and Egyptian bodies are washing up on shore. Moses and Miriam and all of the people of Israel are singing and dancing. And they're singing to the Lord a new song. They're praising him and exalting him for all that he is. They're magnifying him for all that he has done for them. And they're trusting in him for all that he is yet to do. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to move on from that, isn't it? You know, when you, when you are lost in wonder, love, and praise, uh, when you're caught up in the, the worship and the praise of the Almighty God, uh, you feel like you could sing of his love forever. Um, but but even, even while the, the music is still ringing in your ears, Monday morning comes, and it's, it's back to the journey. It's uh, into the wilderness, as the case is with the Israelites. Now we've understood these Exodus events as literal, okay, historical. This is not a, a myth that we've been talking about. This is, this is uh, nonfiction. The author doesn't intend for us to spiritualize these events or to look for scientific explanations of all of the phenomena that he describes. And I hope that you're not embarrassed to believe anything and everything that is revealed to us in scripture about what actually happened 
as they are described to us. At the same time, we recognize that the rest of scripture uses this story uh, as a sort of analogy for the Christian life. You know, the, the Exodus event is analogous to the salvation that we have experienced, uh, where we've been rescued out of slavery to sin and to self and to Satan. And not only that, but we're covered under the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, who is the sinless substitute, who was sacrificed so that the wrath of God might pass over us. And Lord willing, uh, about a month from now, um, at a baptism service at Kinesis Lake, I intend to show you how the Bible uses the picture of Israel coming through the Red Sea safely, through, that, through those waters, I intend to show you how the Bible uses that picture to teach us a little something about baptism. And then fast forwarding a little bit to the, to the promised land, this is where all of this is headed to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that the Lord himself was going to take for his own abode, and he was going to lead his people to dwell there with him, to worship him in. Well, I think scripture understands that to be pointing to a future reality, an ultimate reality, a fuller sort of reality, even the new heavens and the new earth and eternity, worshiping God, dwelling in his presence forever. So these things actually happened, and we believe that they are historical in every detail that they describe, but they're also pointing us forward to greater realities. But between the, the middle section there of the Exodus story, there is a long trek. There is an excruciating journey through the wilderness and we're launching out on that today and I, I suppose it's appropriate for us to ask well what is analogous to that in the Christian life and the answer is I think our sanctification our sanctification if the exodus is a picture of our salvation and the promised land is a picture of our glorification then it's this wilderness journey that is a picture of our sanctification. And in case you're, you don't know that word, it's, it is a fancy kind of a $5 word to describe the Lord's process uh, to produce holiness in us. It refers to our spiritual growth and our progress in the Christian life, in Christ-likeness, actually. Sanctification describes the Spirit's work in us to um, as I prayed a minute ago, to root out indwelling sin and in its place to cultivate the fruits of righteousness. And the goal of sanctification is our holiness, the kind of holiness without which the Bible says no one will see the Lord. It's to prepare us for that promised land that we're headed towards. And uh, here's a quote for you. Uh, it's, it's impossible for me to tell you who originally said this because it's it's been repeated so many times that it's it's almost cliche uh, but I think it's helpful it goes something like this yes the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt but now he's got to get Egypt out of the Israelites and so it is with us um, we've been saved we've been justified 
Uh, we've, we're declared not guilty. We've been given the perfect record of righteousness that Christ himself uh, earned. So that, when the Lord, so that when God looks upon us through Christ, he sees that, that we're righteous. And yet, and yet, we have real holiness that needs to be worked in us. We've got real sin that needs to be worked out of us. And so buckle up, friends, for some excruciating treks through these chapters. Uh, but I trust that they will help us on our own journey of sanctification whereby we are transformed more and more um, glory by glory into the image of Christ. And one particular aspect of this transformation, which was necessary for the Israelites, and I suspect it will be necessary for us, is to, to go from, we need to be changed from bitter to sweet. From bitter to sweet. We'll take that as the, the title of this sermon from bitter to sweet bitter you know that's a very descriptive word and it gets a lot of uh, use in the book of exodus we encountered it first back in exodus chapter 1 verse 14 where it was employed to describe the lives of the israelites in egypt enslaved as they were under the oppressive hands of their slave masters they they were ruthlessly treated and the text says that their lives were made bitter. It's a state of existence. It's a hard and um, difficult existence. And bitter, as you know, and probably this is the first definition of bitter, it can also describe a certain physical taste. You know, when certain foods or drinks hit that, you know, the bunch of taste buds on the back end of your tongue, and you discover these tastes to be like particularly pungent, in most cases to be very off-putting. Although I noticed that a lot of you ladies like dark chocolate and kale. Uh, these, these are just um, a few more inexplicable mysteries of your species. But the adjective bitter is also used to describe the heart of a person who has settled into a state of cynicism and rancor, to borrow from Merriam-Webster's definition. This is, a, this is a person who has suffered great hurts, great disappointments, um, either real or imagined hurts and disappointments. And these people are characterized by intense displeasure and, and a sort of brooding and the bitter heart displays itself by, by lashing out with words that are often severe and harsh, or sometimes they're just cynical and complaining. And I wonder, do you know any bitter people? I guess the more important question is, are you a bitter person? We, we all need sanctification and all of us, to one degree or another, need, by God's grace to, and by the power of the Spirit, to be transformed from bitter to sweet. So let's just uh, take a closer look at this passage and see how the Lord might use it to help us in this regard. Let's look first at the situation, 
the situation. So after the worship service, it was uh, time to leave the beach and continue on the journey. Um, They left the Red Sea and they went, the Bible says, into the wilderness of Shur. Shur is spelled like the the local grocery store. Um, But this particular Shur was not fine. Okay, It, it was a desert. It was a long stretch of wasteland that didn't support very much vegetation at all. Needless to say, this is, this is not a region that could support two or two and a half million people together with all of their flocks and herds. So what we have here already is shaping up to be a situation that not many of us can relate to. Let's just be honest. You know, if our family... Go, say your family goes on a cross-country trip this year, uh, this summer, three-day journey cross-country, well, chances are pretty good that you're going to just basically bop from service center to service center, you know, sipping and snacking and the whole way. And most of us, I dare say, have never experienced the kind of hunger or thirst that that really kind of brings you to your knees or just grips at at your innards and demands to be satisfied. The closest I get is when I'm outside working in the yard um, for many hours, say, on a hot day, uh, weed whacking, uh, bucking logs, just doing all kinds of things that have piled up for the last week or month. I'm I'm just full out. I'm giving her. And... When I'm doing that kind of thing, I'm very task-oriented, and I always forget to hydrate. I mean, nine times out of ten, forget to to be drinking the whole time. I know it's bad. I know it's bad, but I still do it. And so five or six hours later, when I crawl back into the house, my wife is very disappointed in me. But it's, it's my thirst that is doing the most screaming just screaming at me to to satisfy it and that's five or six hours that does not even begin to compare to a three-day journey across the the desert yeah there were some wells that that um other nomads say had had dug and uh these were wells that were sparse and were separated perhaps by a one or two day journey but really far and few between few and far between And in the latter half of verse 22, uh, we see this desperate situation really kind of spelled out for us. It says, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, you can go for quite some time without food, but you can't go for very long without water. So this is a bad deal. You can imagine the people's joy and their expectation when they crawl up to a, a place that is greener than most and has a stone wellhead sticking out of the sand. Eureka, they might have said. Uh, but then when they stuck their heads down the well and smelled the water, maybe they said, Eureka. And, th- and then when they tasted it, 
d despite their raging thirst, you can imagine that they just immediately spit it out because it was bitter. It was undrinkable. Tasted like banana peel. Like they were testing 9-volt batteries on their tongues. It's just so bitter. And the Hebrew word for bitter is mara. And that's a perfect name for a place like this. So whether the Israelites coined this or whether the people that had gone before them had coined this and it was, it was just, they just knew that that's what it was called. Someone earlier perhaps had made this unfortunate discovery and so named the place appropriately enough Mara. That's a pretty depressing name for a place. And I don't know if this matches your aesthetic, but um, if it does, you can follow the Instagram account, Sad Topographies. And uh, they, they'll introduce you to a whole bunch of places around the globe that have been named for their uninspiring features. You know, like, for example, the useless islands of New Zealand, or stupid lake in Manitoba, or crying child island in Florida. There's a, there's a whole host of, of these, and they, they are all kind of memorials to what have missed, must have been very bad, no good days for their founders. This place is called Mara. The water was bitter, undrinkable. But understand this, friends, that the, a lack of potable water is not the extent of Israel's situation. We've only really just described the circumstance. We've just talked about the outward reality. It turns out that there's much more troubling waters below the surface, on the inside. The bigger situation is actually the unbelieving, ungrateful, discontented, forgetful, anxious hearts of the Israelites. And the bitter water situation is merely going to expose the bitter condition of this people's hearts. I bring this up now just so that you'll understand that, that that's the underlying problem. It's going to come up time and time again. The, and, and I want us to understand that the unbelieving heart is a pre-existing condition. It's not that this particular bad circumstance is going to create a bad heart and bad actions. The bad heart predates the bad circumstance. Do you follow what I'm, I'm saying there? That this is a basic biblical principle, but it's one that we've so quickly forget. We, we know, for example, that Jesus says that what proceeds from, uh, what comes out of the mouth of a person proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It, it, it all, all of that bad stuff comes out of pre-existing conditions in the heart. And we know that principle, but we forget it. And so, moms, you'll say to your bratty kids, you make me so angry. Or men, when they see a, a pretty jogger, they, they believe that it's her wardrobe choices that's causing him to lust. No, we, we, need, to, we need to look deeper than the superficial circumstances. 
We need to understand that, that we have angry hearts, that we have lustful hearts. And the real situation that the Israelites face right now is that they have bitter and rebellious hearts. And the Lord in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire has graciously led them to this place called Mara. He's providentially brought them into this particular circumstance so that the, the bitter waters that, that run deep in the aquifers of their heart might be brought to the surface and be sanctified. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you yet understand that the difficult circumstances in your life are by divine design and for a specific purpose? It's so that your, your soul, so these things that are actually in you might be exposed and so that your soul might be brought from bitter to sweet? That's the situation. Let's look secondly at the solution. So what do you do when you're parched and dying of thirst? What do you do when the water tastes like acid? Notice what the Israelites do in verse 24. It says they grumbled against Moses. What shall we do? They said to him. They grumbled, they complained, they whined and they cried. You'll notice that this, this passage uh, throughout is very brief. It's very to the point. There's not a lot of details that are given here. There's not, no real elaboration. But because the details are given um, in other places, like before this and after this, I think we can have a pretty good idea of what their grumbling and their complaining sounded like. It was probably along the lines of, is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? They were probably saying things like to each other like, oh, remember how good the water tasted in Goshen? You know, how when we were making mortar for the bricks, we would sometimes take the hose out of the mixer and just drink directly out of it. And nothing better than fresh, cold Nile River water. And plenty of it. Ah, the good old days. The text doesn't say that, but you have to believe by the times that it does report that kind of nonsense, that that's probably the shape that their grumbling and complaining took. And I included this under the heading of the solution, just to highlight how much of a solution that's not. Just to highlight how unproductive people are when they're in this state. And yet that's the first tack that we often take, isn't it? And often we don't come off of it. Just this complaining and being bitter, grumbling. Do you, have you noticed how bitterness is just a vicious circle? You, you fixate on, you obsess about particular people and conversations and circumstances, all of which have done you dirty and all you can do is just brood as you, as you go over and over and over it again, rehearsing all the details, getting re-offended re by the offense. And I hope, I hope you can see that this is no solution. That, that's not getting you or them anywhere. That's like 
going around and around and down, that's like digging a well where there's no water. You just, you just keep getting deeper and more sore. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Essentially, they are saying to him, you solve this problem. And I don't think I'm reading into things too much when I suspect that they said this in a very sarcastic and cynical sort of a way. They, they probably said that believing that there is no solution. And that, if that's true, then that is actually astounding when you consider that the worship music is still echoing. When you consider that just a few days ago, these people were walking across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then they were worshiping the Lord for, his, for the miraculous work that he did with water. But now all of that seems to be forgotten. And that kind of unbelief seems to us to be almost unbelievable. Except our hearts are no different from the Israelites. We know full well how quickly we can go from worshiping to whining. How we can move from adoration to anxiety and doubt and fear and unbelief. In the search for a solution, the, so the, the ball now is in Moses' court. They say, you, you solve this problem. And I want you to notice what Moses does with that in verse 25. He immediately served it into the Lord's court. It says he cried to the Lord. He, he took it to the Lord in prayer. He, he immediately brought it before the one who was faithfully leading and guiding the people every step of the way. He turned this bad water situation over to the God who has already demonstrated his power over the waters, first by turning the Nile River to blood, and then by splitting water in two just a few days prior. Moses immediately takes this water problem to the God who is sovereign over the waters. And I have to ask, is, is that your instinct as well? Is that mine? When we're faced with difficult situations, do we immediately cry out to the Lord in prayer? Or do we complain to him in protest? I, I fear that it's often the latter. I, I, I think that that we often just default and knee-jerk to bitterness and to complaint and to fear. And oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Friends, we've seen this time and time again in the book of Exodus. That we're dealing with a God who sees and knows and hears. He sees our bitter situation. He, he sees our bitter tears. They're, they're not wasted. They're not lost on him. He stores them, actually, in a bottle. He, he knows our bitter hearts. And, and still, he hears our cries. And not only that, but he rises in power to respond. This is the God that we've been 
confronted with in the book of Exodus. And this is the God that we serve today. A God who hears and sees and responds. And this is precisely what the Lord does again in this situation. Look at verse 25. It says, The Lord heard the cry of his servant Moses and showed him a log. And I think that I've pictured this all my life as just kind of like a branch. But the word here actually refers to something more like the size of a tree. And perhaps this was a tree that had fallen and simply had to be rolled over into the water source. In any case, Moses puts that into the water and the water went from bitter to sweet. Again, I'm, I'm struck by the simplicity of the narrative. The, the action here is just quick and this solution is reported in such a matter-of-fact way that we're left with the strong impression that this was so easy for the Lord. Like this was a piece of cake. The, the situations that are so desperate for us, impossible even, solving those situations is like child's play to the Lord. Have, have you come to an understanding of how powerful the Lord God is? How almighty he is? How able he is to do anything and everything? Even more than we could ever ask or even imagine? Do you realize that the things that are impossible with man are possible with God? This is, this is child's play. This is like chucking a chunk of wood, chucking a chunk of wood into the water. It doesn't get more simple than that. The, the point also is that it's not that God had superior knowledge than the Israelites. You can read some, some people's comments on this portion of scripture. And they, they believe that uh, what really happened here was the Lord knew that this particular tree that had fallen had uh, the sort of chemicals that could leach out into the water that would counteract the bad chemicals in the bitter water and kind of neutralize it. And the Israelites just didn't know about that kind of chemistry. No, that's, that's not... Once again, it's fruitless to try to search for some naturalistic explanation. The point is, this was a miracle. And the, the solution was not a demonstration of the Lord's superior knowledge. No, it was a display of the Lord's power and the Lord's goodness to, to a wayward people. And we sing, for the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always come to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. That's the solution. To come to Christ, to come to the Lord, to, to lay all of our, our burdens, to lay our situations at his feet and watch him solve them in the most amazing ways you could imagine. Let's look third at the statute. The statute. In the second half, statute with a T at uh, S T A T U T E. In the second half of verse 25, we read that then and there, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. It seemed like the, the perfect time and the perfect place for the Lord to reveal 
to his people more about who he is and about what he requires. As for who he is, you know that in the biblical world, um, a person's name typically indicates their, their nature, something of their character. Well, we encounter one of God's names at the end of verse 26. He reveals himself as Jehovah Rophi. Sometimes it's um, rendered as Rapha. But either way, it means the God who heals. And the people would have just seen a great demonstration of the truth of that name as the bitter waters were transformed, healed, if you will, into sweet, life-giving waters. But this miracle at Merah simply is a parable of the healing that the Lord can bring about in the human body and soul. In our call to worship from Psalm 103, we heard this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives you all your iniquities and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is the God we serve. This is Jehovah Rophi. This is a God who delights to heal our diseases. And not just the ones that, that plague and, and poison our physical bodies, although I don't think we should ever in any way downplay that. But this is a God who delights to heal our greater sickness, the, the, the illness that resides in our inner being. I'm talking about our sin sickness. It's the Lord's miraculous work to take us from bitter to sweet when it comes to the sickness that's in our souls. And, and as we've talked about already many times today, I'm thankful for the, the different brothers who have led and who have prayed and told you this good news already, but you understand that God accomplishes this by sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to live and to die on behalf of sinners like us. Jesus goes to the cross, which, by the way, is another one of the trees that give life that we come across in the Bible, a tree of healing, if you will. And Jesus goes to that tree in order to bear our sin and to purchase our pardon. Uh, Isaiah 53 remember, reminds us that he was beaten and he was bruised in our place and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. Jehovah Rophi indeed. He, he heals us through the stripes of his son. That is who he is. And as for what the Lord requires, we can see something of this in verse 26. It's simply this, if I could just boil it down for you. It's listen to the Lord your God and obey him. Listen and obey. Th that same idea is expressed in parallel ways in the verse, but that's the essence of it. Listen and do. Hear and keep. I, I'm, I don't mean to skip over the details because actually the details are very important. Let me just show you for a minute what I mean. 
For example, it's, it's not just listen, it's diligently listen. So what, what's in mind here is not the kind of listening that, that teenagers do when their parents are giving out instructions. It's not the kind of listening that husbands do when their wives are talking about their day, generally. Uh, we're talking about diligently listening. We're, we're talking about listening carefully and attentively, ready, with, with pen on paper, ready to spring into action. And here's another detail. Diligently listening to whom? To the Lord our God. That might seem like such a basic point to you, but think, compare that with your life. I need to compare it with mine. Is that who you listen to most carefully? Honestly. Or is it the political pundits? Is it the podcasters? Is it the social media influencers? Is it your friends at school? Is it your cool coworker? We're called to diligently listen to the Lord, our God, and to obey him. The details are important here too. What are we to do? We're to do the things that are right in his eyes, not the things that are right in our eyes, not the things that, that seem best to us or good to us or most comfortable for us. No, we're to say, we're to do what God says is good. Even if it's the harder, more uncomfortable thing to do. That's what we're to do. And we're to do it um, immediately, without complaining or arguing. Now, in short order, the Lord is going to give his people a lot more detail about what is good and right in his eyes. So he's going to lay out a lot of laws and statutes and rules here in the book of Exodus for his people to follow. And this is kind of coming, I think, in prep to prepare them for that. Okay, it's, it, this, this, it's going to be a feature of Old Testament law that there's going to be blessings and curses associated with keeping or not keeping God's rules. And you can see something of this already in this particular statute and test that the Lord gives here at Merah. He says to Israel that if they listen to and obey, then he's going to put none of the diseases on them that he had put on the Egyptians because he is the Lord, the healer. So the, the undrinkable bitter water of Merah is representative of the, the bloody water of the Nile under the plagues that God sent. And why did he send those plagues upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt? It was because Pharaoh refused to listen and he refused to obey. And this is a picture. This is to be a, a, something that the Israelites can remember so that they know how important it is to listen and obey. And the Lord promises that if they do listen and obey, then none of those diseases that he brought on Egypt will he bring on them. So there's, there's blessings and curses associated with Israel uh, keeping or not keeping the statutes and the laws of God. And we have to be a little bit careful here in how we apply this because we are not under the same law system as Israel. 
we're not in that strict system of blessings and curses. And why not? Well, it's a, first of all, it's a good thing that we're not. Because we just have to admit that we all have failed to listen to the commands of God. And we've all failed to obey. Can't we just admit that we have done what is right in our own eyes? We, we have utterly failed the test that the Lord established here. But the good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ has passed it perfectly, 100%. He perfectly listened to the voice of his Father. And, and, and our Savior perfectly obeyed. And though all Christ deserved was blessing because of that, and all we deserved was cursing because of that, Here's, here's the beauty of the gospel, that he became a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Just glory for a second in this explanation from Galatians. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And brothers and sisters, having experienced so great a salvation, it's our duty and it's our privilege to now live for his glory. This is our sanctification. This is our healing. We're called to listen diligently to the Lord and to keep all that he has commanded. Now let's uh, turn fourthly to something that I want to call the sip, the sip. And let me just take one now. Exactly 30 years ago, I, I worked for the, the summer as a maintenance guy at a Christian camp near Peterborough, Ontario called Elam Lodge. And uh, that camp took its name from verse 27. And it was, it, was, it was printed all over their literature, at least part of this verse. It said, and they came to Elam. It was a perfect name for a camp because it was meant for families to come in the summertime and be refreshed by the preaching of God's word and by fun and fellowship with other Christian families. Um, look at the original Elam. Look at what God has graciously done. After this experience, he leads his people to this place that is an absolute oasis in the middle of the wilderness. This is a place of refreshment. It's a place of healing. There's 12 springs of water. So there's not just one well with bitter water. There's 12 wells. I suppose one for each tribe. And it's you have to believe it's delicious water. There's 70 palm trees. Perhaps that's not an exact number, but that would be a way that um, the author here could just, 70 or 7 being numbers that indicate perfection and totality. This would be a way for the author to say, there was lots of palm trees. Cool. There was, it was all cool and green and, and shady. 
this was this was the place to be. More healing trees. And I call this a sip because this this really is for the Israelites, I think. When you read it in context here, doesn't this seem to be to you just God graciously giving the people a glimpse into his blessing? It's a glimpse into what he is able to do for those who fear him and keep his commandments. And I'm sure the the people were, in fact, refreshed and that they were, in fact, renewed and reinvigorated in order to uh, follow and serve the Lord. And I I suppose the same kind of invitation comes to, to us today as well. The Bible invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't he good? Hasn't he been good to you? And friends, this is a difficult journey. We are on a sort of a trek through the wilderness. Sanctification is never easy. It's it's never comfortable. Um, But God is gracious to give us a glimpse of what he has in store for those who fear him and obey him. And he does this in a number of ways, but I, I think one of the best ways he does this is he gives us the book of Revelation. He gives us a glimpse into the future, into eternal glory in a promised land. And I want you to just hear the description of what John saw as he was shown a little glimpse in the first Five verses of Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the land will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Don't don't you long for that day? When there's, there's no more grumbling, no more fear, every tear wiped away, no more pain, no more sin, complete healing. The day in which everything, and I mean everything, the world, our bodies, our souls, will finally be brought from bitter to sweet. And so we say, Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Amen.